Well, good evening, everybody. This is Dr. Danette Vershay, and I am the senior pastor of Treasures of the Heart International Ministries, affiliated with the Church of God and Christ, and I bring you greetings from the Church of God and Christ International Sunday School Department. We are excited on this evening. I just want to give honor where honor is due to our great leader, Bishop Charles E. Blake. I also shout out to our president of the Church of God in Christ International Sunday School Department, which is Bishop Alton Gatlin, and our international field representative for the Sunday School Department is Mother Cleolia Penix, and a special, a special shout out to uh, Superintendent Brown and Evangelist Wayneil Henson, and I also want to welcome uh, at this time uh, the Greater North Carolina Jurisdiction of Church of God in Christ for advertising this call on today and being a vital part of getting the word out. And their presiding prelate is Bishop Leroy Jackson Willard. Uh, state supervisor is Mother Harazine H. Keys. And the jurisdictional Sunday school superintendent is Elder Mark Smith. And their field representative is Evangelist Valeria Blackwell. I also want to acknowledge uh, Upper Room Church of God and Christ in Raleigh, North Carolina, and its instructors who have been a vital part of what we do. I also want to give a shout-out to Superintendent Michael Payton of uh, Illinois' first uh, jurisdictional uh, Church of God and Christ that is in Illinois for handling our Saturday night uh, Sunday schools. I think they're going on their uh, 224th edition. I'm excited about what's going on and what God is doing in this season. And also a shout out to to any other instructors or churches that are in the greater North Carolina district and also in the state of North Carolina in which I serve. And to those surrounding states that would join in on this call and just truly be uh, an encouragement to me as we move forward in the Word of God for what it is that Sunday School does to equip us for the effective work of, of ministry and to be that foundation, that substance that we need to continue in our Christian walk. Again, this call is in a non-traditional setting, and it is to meet the needs of those leaders in those churches that are not holding uh, traditional Sunday school and or Bible study. And this call is to meet your weekly obligation for those services that would be held. And so I'm truly excited on this evening about what God is doing in this word. Uh, let us open up in a word of prayer as we go forth in this awesome lesson. Dear Heavenly Father, I praise you. Lord, I give you glory and honor on today that, Lord, that we know that, Lord, that you will never forget, but, Lord, that as we continue to seek your face and as we enter into this lesson. Lord, allow me to decrease so the spirit of the living God can increase in this place as we move forth in this lesson so we all can understand what unity is. So, Lord, that we can all be a vital unit to understand what happens when we supersede your authority. But, Lord, we thank you and praise you on this evening that this word shall go forth and a soul shall be saved, a soul shall be reclaimed, and we shall be equipped and trained for the effective work 
of the ministry. In Jesus' name I pray. Again, I greet you. This is Dr. Danette Bershay of the Church of God in Christ International Sunday School Department, and we are on Lesson 4 with God Will Never Forget. And our Bible basis is Amos 8 and 1 through 6 and 9 through 10. Our Bible truth is Amos says that God will no longer overlook their misdeeds and will destroy them for all time. Our memory verse is, and he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, the end is come upon my people of Israel, and I will not again pass by them anymore. In Amos 8 and 2. And men and women of God, that by the end of this lesson, that we'll be, we'll be able to understand of the unjust practices and the consequences, and especially during Amos' time, and we'll be able to reflect on how the church practices injustices and, and it being seemingly in, in oblivious to those injustices. And then we'll be able to understand and encourage the church to, uh, to address injustices in the church and address the unjust practice within our community of faith. And so this is something that's imperative for our life needs because we have to be careful and not allow their deceit and cheating of others to become a way of life and to miss the warning signs of the consequences of others and their wicked ways. And and to be able to biblically apply that as a people of faith and live to obey God rather than to test God. And I believe that we test God because we don't believe that in that instant that he will show up and bring consequences upon us. And so we've got to be mindful that we don't test God and knowing that as we have responses and as your students will be responding, that people of faith will reflect on and we will begin to analyze the root causes of injustice and, and their involvement in that injustice. We know that there's injustice around the world, but this lesson is letting us know that as a people of God, that if there is an injustice in the church, don't be oblivious to the injustice that we've got to speak up for what it is that's right and understand that if you don't abide by that, God is going to chastise you because you know. And so in that, we want, to, we want everybody to make it into heaven. We want us to be able to understand and see his amazing grace. Now, when we look at this lesson, and if you have your lesson, turn to page 38, and in the light on the word, it gives us an overview of Amos and what his personal name means, one who is carried, and he, he was a prophet from, from Judah who ministered in Israel around 750 B.C. And then some begin to describe the prophet Amos as a burden bearer, and he carried a burden of his people and or his people were a burden that 
he carried. And we understand that there are people that are within our congregations that we do carry their burdens and in that we are burden bearers. And so we're likened unto Amos. Now, in the new moon, as we see, was the festivals, and they were held at the beginning of every lunar year. And in this, the priests would make an, an offer, a burnt offering. And this consisted of two male calves, one ram, and seven spotless lambs combined with a drink offering of wine. And these offerings, they were accompanied by the blowing of the trumpet or shofar. And all trade and commerce were stopped as on the Sabbath. And spiritual significance of the New Moon Festival can be found in the setting apart of a natural division of time. Now, hear me, men and women of God, that when we move into this lesson, understanding the Lord's vision for Amos, we, we see that the first vision that Amos received was a swarm of locusts. And then we see... We see that, that the locusts came and then would be the famine for the people. And then Amos began to plead and, and understand the devouring, devouring fire and, and that he pled to, to, for the people to be saved. And then Amos was shown that plumb line. And then we see that the standard, we, we see that Israel would be shown to not be in the line with God's standards and torn down. And in this, we move into this section of the confrontation by Amaziah. And here we see that where Amos had denounced the legitimacy of the shrine at Bethel and then the people's worship. And then as a result, uh, Amariah had told Amos to go back to Judea and earn a living as a prophet there. But Amos had responded to him to let him know that by stating that he's a farmer and a shepherd and that his prophetic calling is not for monetary gain. And we know that we've got a lot of people who who are prophets and they use their gift for monetary gain. And there is going to be a consequence for that. And but in the divine mandate from from the Lord, understanding that he prop, that the he prophesied that Amaziah's family would die and that foreigners would claim his property. Amos also began to add that that Amaziah himself would die in a, in a foreign land. That means a foreign land. For that to be predicted, the, to be the end of Israel, that you'll no longer understand or know where you are or, or where, where you've been placed, that wilderness experience, that land will, that is foreign, you no longer know. And so as we look in this and we see the human grief perspective, this is where we see that that and imminent devastation. This is where, as we understand, that Amos concluded his message to Amaziah by reasserting the same prediction, which got him in trouble with his priests in the first place. And so Israel shall surely be led away captive out of his land. And Amos may have been expelled from Israel after his confrontation, understand, with Amaziah. And so if so, then the visions and prophetic oracles had continued to come to him. The fourth vision was not as dramatic as the first three. And so Yahweh showed Amos a basket of summer fruit, and a question from the Lord had fixed Amos' attention and elected, him, elected from him the utterance of the word basket. Now, 
that was the key word in this grief factor of our humanness. And then by the means of a play on words that Yahweh, God, had explained to Amos the significance of the vision. So the end is come upon my people. And the word for end is is quet. And it sounds in Hebrew very much like the word summer fruit, which is gate. And the political end of the northern Israel would come about because Yahweh had declared that he would not again pass by them anymore. And so he would not overlook their transgression any longer. Now, while the word basket is the key to the fourth vision and the significance of the summer fruit was well along in the ripening process should not be overlooked. So the ripening process is, a, is gradual in its outset and it's swift in its conclusion and it's ruinous in its end and irreversible. So this basket of late summer fruit was a good illustration of the corruption of Israel. So hear me now, men and women of God, that Amos then explained what he meant by the end of my people Israel. And in the temple, the songs would be turned to wailing, joyous worship to lamentation, and because the dead bodies shall be many. And so numerous, numerous would be the corpses that burial would be impossible. And the dead bodies would be unceremoniously cast forth with silence. And this is what we have to offer for, for Amos verses 8, 1 through 3. So we're, we're seeing the vision of the summer fruit. And now it shows that, that Israel is ripe for judgment which is to come very soon. And in that being, in that being, as we, as we look at the verses 1 through 3, to just coincide with what this overview I've just given for the human grief, is that thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then said the Lord unto me, the end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. And the songs of the temple shall be howling in that day, saith the Lord God. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They, they shall cast them forth with silence. Now understand that here in the closing verses of chapter 7, this is where Amos had confronted the priests and Messiah and pronounced an oracle of judgment against him for his failure to believe the word of God. Now, Amos, and, and has, as we see this, how things begin to work in a, in a backwards way kind of sort, where in Amos chapter 7 and verses 16 and 17, Amos then issued a prophetic utterance that was directly to Amaziah. And in that prophetic utterance, it was, pers it was personal, whereas Yahweh had called Amos to prophesy. And then the priest had ordered him not to prophesy, and he was not to drop his word against the house of Isaac 
Amen, somebody, that the northern kingdom. And the verb used here was natas, and it pictures the word of prophecy dropping refreshingly, like dew upon the obedient, but like, but like monotonous water that tortured upon the disobedient. By directing this oracle to Amaziah, Amos was violating the gag order, as we see in Amos chapter 7, verse 16. So when we move to 17, so we can get an understanding that because Amaziah had dared to try and silence the living word of Yahweh, God, that he would face a terrible personal judgment, and that first his wife would become a harlot in the city, and that in the economic extremities which Israel would face during the days of the Assyrian invasion, that his wife would voluntarily, would voluntarily enter into whoredom to obtain her accustomed luxuries. And then second, Amaziah's children would fall by the sword of those same Assyrians. So now the fact that daughters would be included in the slaughter would now indicate abnormal cruelty. And that normally the Assyrians, hear me now, have spared the women to become wives for their soldiers. And then third, the real estate owned by, by Amaziah would be divided by line, parceled out to others. And, and, and here is where I, I likened them to, to think that probably colonists had settled in the area by the Assyrians. So fourth, Amaziah himself would die in an uncleaned land and on foreign soil. Thus Amaziah would be carried away into captivity and that foreign lands were considered by Israelites unclean because of the idolatry that was practiced there. So here, that was in 17a, but when I read 17b in that clause, it led me to understand even more why our lesson had to mention these verses and mention this chapter. It's because that Amos had concluded his message to Amaziah. This is where he reasserted the same prediction, which got him into that trouble with the priests in the first place. And so... In that, in his confrontation with Amaziah, this is where Amos had overcame two temptations. And he resisted the temptation to change his message or to plead misunderstanding or to apologize for anything which he had said. And then second, he had resisted the temptation to act in his own self-interest, to preach where he would be economically comfortable and physically secure. And so now he, he resumes where he left off and continues the account of his vision. And this is where he begins by authenticating his fourth vision the same way as the previous ones by declaring that the Lord showed him a vision. And because the Lord had showed him a vision our lesson references Amos 7 and 1, which Amos's vision came from the Lord Yahweh, the sovereign Yahweh. The first four visions had a uniform introduction. And here that thus the Lord, thus the Lord Yahweh showed me. So whether this was a kind of inward illumination or whether the vision was seen with the physical 
impossible to determine because he says, behold, that introduces that shocking scene when Amos saw in his first vision that Yahweh was forming locusts. And so the, the, the participle, it, it begins to indicate that a continuous action. And in this, a reference may be to the larval stage of this insect. So now and we see some commentators, and they see the locust as a veiled reference to the Assyrian invasion of Israel, and that the vision is best understood, however, as the threat of a literal locust attack. So now, hear me, that the time of the appearance is crucial. That in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth, that in Palestine, the first growth begins in October and continues through the winter. And the latter growth comes in spring after the latter rain. So if this herbage was destroyed, there would, there would be no hope of recovery for the rest of the year because the rains were all past and the heat of the summer was starting. So then he he moves us to verse 4. And verse 4, this is where it it shows that it's at some unspecified time later that Amos had saw a second vision. And in it he saw the Lord Yahweh in an open contention with his people. And the Lord called forth fire to be used in the conflict. And the the all-devouring fire, it represents now, hear me, it represents a much more severe judgment than that was, that was depicted in the first vision. And, and this was, it wasn't an ordinary fire. That it, would, it devoured the great deep, the, the subterranean waters, which supply waters for fountains and rivers. And then Amos saw, he saw the resulting drought it was beginning to consume and the portion. And this may refer to the land occupied by Israel, the people of God, or to both the land and the people. So I find it very fitting that when he moves us in this lesson, as it moves us along, we see in, we see in verse 7, that it says that Yahweh was standing alongside a wall which had been built with the aid of a plumb line. And this wall symbolized Israel and the plumb line. So God's, God's law. So it established by the law of God that Israel had been an upright nation. So now we see that the wall showed signs of, of the deviating from the perpendicular. So now... That tottering wall was a public menace, and it had to be destroyed. So the illustration deals with what Amos heard and why our lesson mentions it, that in the last vision in verses 7 through 9 that Amos declared that the end was certain, but here he declared it's imminent. So in its imminence, it says that he responded to, Yahweh responded to the prophet's observation. In this, second, that Yahweh had announced the verdict regarding the fate of Israel. He said that I will not pass by them anymore. This is 
the equivalent to saying, I'll not again pardon this people. And that why does, why does Amos not offer up a third intercessory prayer? That was my question. Why doesn't he offer up a third intercessory prayer? And I figured that he, he must have interpreted he must have interpreted Yahweh's declaration as meaning that prayer at this point would be useless or or in a moral universe. So judgment on sin is inevitable at some point. And that the words of Yahweh seal the doom of Israel. And that's in that's in verse eight. So when we move to seven and nine now we see the big picture that finally that Yahweh had declared that the ruling dynasty in Israel would experience his judgment. And that he said that I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So the political structure was as crooked as the religious structure. And that the political, the, the, the words, the words are, are probably not to be restricted to the house of Jeroboam, but rather the entire Israelite monarchy. And with the fall of the house of Jeroboam, the Jehu dynasty, the Israelite monarchy in effect came to a close. And the sword which God would use against the monarchy in the north would be Assyria. So here, this is now we see the present vision is is to reiterate and make the final previous one that he saw a basket of summer fruit and he heard its responses and and he, the end was going to come. And so we see that usually in the summer it was not preserved, but it was eaten as, as soon as it was gathered up. And here we see the devastation and the temporalness, the temporalness and how the ripeness was to now coincide with Israel was now ready for its judgment, and but its destruction and its devastation. And there's only two responses, that, fruit, that first all of the joy shall be turned into mourning, and the song of joy will be turned into yells. That is into sounds of lamentation because of the multitude of the dead on the ground on every side that the word howling had described as an inarticulate. It was shattering scream common during funerals and particularly in times of sudden devastation. And second, there will be silence and appropriate response to God's severe judgment that accompanied by a destruction of untold proportions. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. And so in this song of misery, we see that the Lord goes on to say that Israel's temple songs would turn into the sounds of grief and misery, and that the temple in Bethel was the foundation of the nation, and it was. It was the spiritual foundation to the political kingdoms. So now we understand that the destruction of the temple was going, to, was, was going to be imminent. The dead bodies were everywhere. So now we look into our cosmic, this cosmic grief. And in this cosmic grief, grief as we see in verses 4, and it, it, this is, it's strange to me because the word of God begins to, to line this up in such a way that it becomes so distinct that that the oracle which follows the fourth vision may have been delivered may have been delivered in Judah during a second phase of Amos's ministry. 
so we see we see that in this that in any case that the verses contain one of the strongest indictments against the covetedness that's found everywhere in the Bible. Hear me now, men and women of God, that that now we see in verse 4 that hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy even to make the poor of the land to fail, that saying, when, when will the new moon be gone, that ye may sell corn and Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the effort small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit, my God, and that we may buy the poor for the silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell and the refuse of the wheat. So here's where we see that the the covetedness stands condemned in this oracle for four reasons, because the greedy swallow up the needy. And we see the covetedness harms innocent people. This is where the oracle begins with hear this, which is now similar to the earlier where we hear hear this in chapter 3, verse 1, and then 4, and then 1, and 5, and then 1. So we see that covetedness stands condemned in the oracle. So now covetedness harms innocent people. So the needy and the poor suffer as, as a result of the sin. And the first term where we see that ebion, that often that spiritual connotations, that it frequently it refers to those who are meek and humble. And then the second term, that's anab, it begins to re- it refers to those who are physically destitute. So the oracle is addressed to those who pant after, trample, the needy. That verb conveys a picture, men and women of God, of a vicious beast after its prey that is eager to swallow it. And that the metaphor, it probably begins to refer to the land barons and forcing people into debtors of slavery so that, that, so that there could be that, that, that conflict, that their small holdings. And so through both legal and illegal means, these powerful landholders, they were causing the poor of the land to fail. So then we see the covetedness that despises sacred things because the new moon and the Sabbath were sacred days under the laws of Moses. And normally commerce, commerce was suspended at this time. So yet, instead of focusing on worship, the greedy merchants, they were calculating the profits from future sales. They were predicting future sales. They were, as we, as we used to say, they were predicting their come up before it was even sold. And so the sacred days were an annoying interruption to their business and that they could not wait for the holy days to be over so they, they could market their wheat and other grains. And they loved grain and gain and gold and more than they loved God. And so now we have the third covetousness, which was the covetedness employs unscrupulous practices. And that in the business dealings, the wealthy merchants used every trick in the trade. They trade the epith, the dry measure, which was about a bushel small. The buyer got less of the commodity than, than he had purchased. They pulled the old okey doke I don't know if, if y'all ever, ever played that game, three-card molly. 
and in the three-card molly where they've got the card and you've got to try to find the right one, and in that they're still taking away and taking away in the deck. And so they're shifting things. And a shift can be either good or a shift can be either bad. And in this sense, the shift was bad. They were pre-calculating a profit, and they were shorting the people of God. They were shorting. The poor were getting poor. They could never have any gain. They could never double up on their increase because they always got to the bottom of the barrel beforehand. They never had any leftovers. And in this practice of these merchants, there should have been more for the increase, more for what their money had purchased. And so the buyer understand that the buyer got less of the commodity than they had purchased, and they had made the shekel great. And so the, the buyer would, would, would have to place more gold or silver in the balances to equal the heavier weight on the other side. And so then understand that the customer got less product for more exchange. Mm, my God, I don't know if any of you have ever been in the streets before, but I, I know I'm saved, and let me testify for a minute, that we know that, you know, I'm saved and recovered and been through drug recovery and those types of things. And back in the day, this is what, you, what drug dealers would do. They would put a cut on the product and or charge you more for a product that had cut on it that you wouldn't get, you wouldn't get your money's worth for if you, bought, if you bought in large quantities of cocaine. So don't none of you so saved and sanctified folks fall out on me now. So this is something that, that happens. And so now you can't make your money back because it's not going to come back right. You're going to have complaints. You're going to have to pay more money for, what it, for the weight that it is that you are purchasing. So now you have to charge your customers more because you got shorted, so you need to make your money back. So now you now put a cut on that product. So the customer is not only getting less product, you still need to make your money back, so now you're still charging more. So we're putting more weight on the balances. So you're robbing people. So here, this is also where we need to see, amen, somebody, that that the customer was getting that less product. And in addition, Amos accuses this. So he accused the merchants of dealing falsely with balances of deceit. And apparently, understand, you know they rigged the scale. They rigged the scales to be in their favor. And so the verification, the verification of the situation described by Amos was discovered by archaeologists in, in Terza. And that was one of the leading cities of the north of northern Israel. Two sets of weights were found, one for buying and one for selling. And we and, and those we find those dates in the time of Amos. So now we see the covetousness result in the cruel oppression. Stay with me, men and women of God. We are still in the cosmic grief. And in, in, this, in this grief of what we see of the greedy and the needy, we see that, that the wealthy were determined to buy the poor for silver and that by cheating the poor man, they made him so poor that he would be obliged, understand, to sell himself to them from want and distress. He had to sell himself to make ends meet. For the smallest debt, no more than the price of a pair of shoes, 
that they would they would be sold by the court into slavery. And in addition to everything else, the poor man only got the refuse of the wheat for his hard-earned money. And thus the merchants were falsifying the product they sold, and they were selling as good wheat, FS, mostly filled with the wheat which fell through the split. So this refuse wheat was normally given to the animals, the breakdown. The shake is what they gave the animals, so and hence is what they were giving the people. So now the rich were getting richer, and the poor were getting poor, and the poor became even even poorer than what poor. So now we see the the oppression. They kept going. They kept going on with their religious activities, observing the Sabbath and other festivals, worship, fraud, exploitation, and oppression went on simultaneously, and their worship was superficial, which was formal and hypocritical. They didn't care. They're still getting rich. The the religious leaders are still having events at their churches. People are struggling. struggling. They're still draining the people, offering after offering. So now it it detested the rest of the Sabbath wanting to keep it as short as possible. Hey, keep it as short as possible. We got money to make. And then they considered the time spent for the festival as business. It was time lost. How can praising God be time lost? How can worshiping and singing and giving adoration and exhortation and edifying God be a waste of time? So now Amos quoted the merchants to show their attitude toward worship. When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn and the Sabbath that, that we may set forth wheat? Their greed caused them to use deception and increase of their profits. Their greed caused them to have more events at the religious, at the temples and at the churches. Greed causes us to have more events having the family out more and more. You're sacrificing yourself. Your family is not at home doing what God required of the first ministry. They're continuously out at the house of God worshiping because man's got a deadline to meet. Man's got an obligation, got a got bills to pay, got the, the artists to pay, have things to do to make money, houses to build, construction to be to be erected, but not any not to worship for God because it was worshiping, but hurry up and worship so we can get back to business. But while you worship, you can go ahead and do some work. Mm, mm, mm. My God, the devil is a liar. And so in this, on, on the one hand, they reduce the weight as we see. And so in reducing the weight, it caused, it caused the cheating. In the reducing of your praise time and in your devotion time, you cheat God. I don't want to cheat God. I don't want it to be. I don't want it to be what God says. You cheated me because you was too busy being out somewhere else, church hopping, or going to all these different events. When do you have time to worship me? Because I know you got to sleep. If you're only worshiping me in that place and it's only for an appointed time, because you've got to work while you're worshiping, it's not real. So now we see you come home, you're tired, you sleep. Where's the worship while you lay down and we fall asleep while we're praying? 
and that's not what God requires of his people. He doesn't want us to be liars of our worship or be fictitious in the weightiness of how we praise him. And so we don't want, we understand that the merchants bought the poor and then they confiscated their property as payment for debt. I don't want my property, my praise and my worship confiscated for me so someone else can, can, can televise it and they get paid for my worship. They get paid to be in the presence of my anointing, of your anointing. We don't want it prostituted. I don't want my praise and worship to be put off as if a a payday lending situation. I praise you pay. Mm, mm, mm. Israel's sins are, are are descriptive of our contemporary society, and that is the truth. We know that for some people living, living in the Western world, that materialism is another God, and this is what's happening in our churches, men and women of God, that understand me that the materialism of our edifices and our colors and all those different things that we do, houses and cars, the materialism, you can't take that with you. That becomes your little G. And with that becoming your little G, God is not pleased. That the possessiveness is that challenge. It's a great challenge. And it is... You know, it is a a world of opulence and one drowned in affluence. Don't be so quick to want to be in the presence of those that have money or those that can buy their way or those that are in such a social status that you become a groupie. God doesn't want that because your praise and worship is unto that that man or that woman that you are following, and God does not want that to happen because your praise in worship is now hindered. It's hindered because it's only temporal, and he doesn't want that. Understand that at whose expense are we being enriched? Are workers being underpaid? That means our praisers, and let's liken it to our spirituality, We're underpaying God because we're not giving him our all. And when we rig services to be in our favor, we all sin because we all have been entangled in the shortness of the service because we got another one to do or to go to. We have to remember that the human greed for profit at the expense of the innocent, destroys a society in just deserts of divine repayment. And it is indeed the the akin to a kind of religion evoking profound love of self and happy acceptance of, of the ruin of others and neglecting God's command to love God and our neighbors first, as we see in our scripture, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six to 30, it says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law, that Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind, that this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So now we see, but insatiable greed is so fundamentally 
foreign that the whole truth of God, that it must not be tolerated but seriously condemned. But as Amos sees it, the foundation of avarice are so firm that only something earth-shattering could waken its proud structures. Only something, only something serious, only something earth-shattering would stop the behavior. It would stop the prostitution of people. It would stop the covetedness of the, of, of the poor. It would stop the unscrupulous practices. It would, it, would, it would stop the despising of sacred things. It would stop the results of cruel oppression. And so now we see that in verse 9, that, and it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in that day. Mm, mm, mm. I don't know about y'all, but I'm shouting right about now because I'm, I'm, I'm really getting mine. So here, we, here is where we see, <laughs> amen, somebody, we see that understanding of that, that day of judgment would see the sun go down at noon, thus Yahweh would darken the earth in the clear day. An eclipse of the sun was visible in Palestine on June 13th, June 15th of 763 B.C., and that event may have been the background for the utterance of Yahweh, and that the language, the language here, however, it's metaphorical, in, in its more metaphorical sense, for the sudden destruction of the nation at the height of their prosperity. Understanding that this phase, it shall come, no, it denotes and it follows the occurring things that are in the future. So this is where Amos begins to refer to them that the day of the Lord, and when he says that devastation, the total eclipse, the Lord would create a day of the darkness that would turn that buryment into misery and transform their happy days into lamentation and mourning. So the day of the light would become a day of darkness. That was the eclipse that took place that symbolizes the light that it was symbolizing that the light of God's face, it would be, his face would be hidden from Israel. There's similar images of the Lord bringing darkness in times of judgment in several passages. Because here's where we see in those passages of scripture that are so important that we see in Isaiah 59 and 10 that we grope for the wall like the blind and grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We see Jeremiah 13 and 16, Give glory to the Lord your God before, the, before he caused darkness, and before your feet stumble upon dark mountains, and while ye look for light, he turn it into shadow of death and make it gross darkness. And Jeremiah 15 and 9 says that she that have borne seven languishes, she have given up the ghost. Her son, S-U-N, is gone down while it was yet day. She have been ashamed and confounded, and the residue of them will I deliver to the sword before their enemies, saith the Lord. 
So the imagery here is of the darkness on a clear day that is shocking and it symbolically expresses the suddenness and the unexpected end of Israel's prosperity and the darkening of her glory days, just when the nation seemed at its principal power, just at the height of its prosperity, just at the height of when things are going good, just at the height when our churches are getting filled up, just at the height when it seems like, wow, all our members are coming back, just when it seems like our praise is Our praise and worship is drawing people in. God is saying, not so. Understanding that the nations today, we've got to be warned because God has not changed. And because he has not changed, men and women of God, we've got to put things in perspective. Because remember, remember, we've got to remember the plumb line. And in remembering the plumb line, understand the vision, it lets the prophet know that all hope for Israel has been exhausted. And judgment has to come. And the purpose of the plumb line is to illustrate how far Israel had strayed away from God's righteousness and that it must be destroyed. My God. My God. So it must be. He says it must be destroyed. So now this is where the curse of covetedness comes in. And judgment of covetedness among God's people was certain that Yahweh, Yahweh sworn, has sworn by the pride of Jacob, the pride of the nation of Israel. And so in 6.8, this is where we saw that Yahweh, the sword by himself in 4.2, he swore by his holiness in 6.8. Yahweh expressed contempt for the four the pride of Jacob, and here by way of contrast in the true pride of Jacob, that Yahweh himself, Yahweh himself in 8 and 7. So now Yahweh had sworn that he would never forget any of their deeds, that the Lord can never show mercy to those who cannot bestow mercy on others, and that the judgment against covetedness would be terrible, that by means of a negative rhetorical question, Amos is still underscoring that certainty of the calamity and that shall not the land tremble for this. And it dem- it's, it's, demonst- it's demonstrative and then it demonstrates and then it refers to the sins of the people or to the, the substance of the oath. So the trembling of the land refers to the earthquake. So here is where we move into the other areas and those references of the massive earthquake, that shattering. I just want to reiterate those verses of Scripture and those passages so we understand that in the days of King Uzziah, which was still remembered two two years later, in Zechariah Zechariah 14, 14 and 5. And so... This is where the severity of that earthquake is likened to that annual inundation of the Nile River and that the rising of the Nile takes a month or so and the sinking of a river takes a similar amount of time. So that earthquake envisioned by Amos would not be a momentary tremor, that it would be prolonged. It's a prolonged shaking as we see in Amos 8 and 8. It is prolonged. Your nation your individual nation, you as a person, is going, it's going to tremble. It is going to be irreversible for you 
that the day of judgment would see that the sun go down at noon. That the prosperity that you thought you had, your nation, you as a child of God, me as a child of God, would tremble because of what we came to be prosperous, but we forgot the worship. We forgot the true worship. So in verse 10, it says that, and I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation, and I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head, and I will make it as the morning of an only son and the end thereof as a bitter day. You mean to tell me that as judgment begin to unfold that the people of God would make a conscious effort to even try to show awareness of sin? My God, that their feasts would be turned into mourning and their songs into lamentations and that all, all would be put on sackcloth. All would have to put on sackcloth. That was that coarse cloth. It was made of goat or of camel hair, which was worn by mourners. And they would shave their heads as a mourning sign forbidden in the law of Moses because of its heathen association, as we see in Deuteronomy 14 and 1. The mourning of that day would be as intense as that for an only son, for a mother or a father that had an only son, S-O-N, and your only son has passed away. That pain, that grief, that Agony, that's the type of mourning, that gut-wrenching mourning that stays with you for a period of time, causes you to tremble and to shake, causes you to not be able to sleep because of the failure to abide by God's righteousness. And he continues, the Lord continues to reverberate, as we saw in verse 10, because of the judgment. The happy days will become harrowing days, and festivals will be turned into mourning and joy to sadness, because Israel had turned God's justice and righteousness into bitterness and poison. And when you turn God's righteousness into your self-opinion, when you turn it into your own poison, when you turn it into bitterness, but yet we're saved, but yet we're sanctified, you rob God, but then you rob the person who it is that you're dealing with of an opportunity for mercy to be bestowed upon them. So one can't celebrate light and live in the darkness. Baldness on every head has suggested that every person in Israel would be touched by the grief and causing calamity. The Lord vowed to make to make the coming grief like that morning of that sun. So that loss, that loss produces an unspeakable grief. An unspeakable grief. Sorrow attending the loss of an only son. Because not only is all hope for the continuing one's family gone, but also for the provision for the ones, uh, the ones that are in old age, those that have an only son, and they're old, they're old in age, and they can't reproduce. 
So what do they have to look at but just pictures, but just memory? But out of disobedience of its leaders, they perish too because they're following madness. They're following chaos. They're following deception. They're following socio-economical oppression. And ultimately, you become what it is your leader is. And if you become what your leader does and you know that an injustice is being done and you don't stand up for it, the Word of God is telling us that the Lord is going to reverberate and it is going to happen to us because we were held captive to it, because the Lord vowed to make the coming grief like mourning of an only son. And so in that, in the continuation, because Jeremiah, Jeremiah 6 and 26 says, O daughter of my people, gird thee with sackcloth and swallow thyself in ashes. Make thee mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation. For the spoiler shall suddenly come upon us. Mm, mm, mm. Zechariah 12 and 10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Your firstborn child, can you... Imagine your firstborn child laid, being laid to rest. I can't imagine. I can't imagine that, only because I fought so hard to maintain my my pregnancy with my firstborn child. My firstborn child was born blue, dead, revived. I too was rushed in surgery, revived. And she's living to this day. I'm still alive to this day. So I can't imagine, I can't imagine the loss of my firstborn. Can you imagine the loss of your firstborn child? So now the, now we see the hopelessness of that day and the day that starts out with mourning and, and your only son is sure to end as that bitter as it began. And if we really desire the light of God to shine on us, then we must walk in the light. We must walk in the light, men and women of God. Understanding, understanding that when we walk in that light, we understand who God is, but knowing that wherefore before the Lord of judgment fell on Pharaoh and his kingdom, now the Lord's judgment falls on the northern kingdom for their own stubbornness and disobedience, that it will be a day of mourning, feasting, celebration will cease. All the songs they sing will be gloomy funeral, funeral songs. The Lord's judgment will cause them to wear sackcloth and shave their heads. And because of, because of that, that judgment, understand that judgment against covetedness, it was terrible and rhetorical that as the judgment began to unfold, the people of God would make a conscious effort to try to show 
show that awareness, men and women of God. We'll try to show God we are, see, we are praising you, Lord. We are giving you all, Lord, we're giving you everything. This is where we're seeing, and you can say amen at this point if you like. I've unmuted the phone because I believe that, that in this day that our praise and worship is the edification and it is not to be sold. We are not to profit by the things that we do in the church. Mm-hmm. That when we see injustices, that we've got to speak up. We can't allow it to continue for fear of being ostracized. Hmm. God has given us a voice to speak up. He's given us a voice voice to exhort. He's given us a voice to fight the injustices for the poor or fight the injustices for those that are too meek and too weak to fight for themselves when they are done wrong. This is where church hurt comes in at. So now imagine church hurt and someone mourning behind that. Mourning behind what their leader has done, so now they are suffering, and to feel that type of grief, we've got to understand that profit, profit motives, you know, they drive most of what we do. This is a, we have, we have a capitalist society in our economy, and it's created those blessings for those that that with no opportunity, and so it, it has also created a culture in which we worship at the God of profit, the little G of profit, and that's P-R-O-F-I-T, not P-R-O-P-H-E-T. Understand that, that whatever we'll sell, we will sell it regardless of whether it affects our fellow citizens negatively. We'll do what we need to do because it's what we do, regardless of how it makes somebody else feel. It becomes pompous. It becomes arrogant, and it hurts people. So God is saying, we've got to stop it. If we don't stop this, judgment is coming. Because what I did then, I'm going to do now. Woo, my God. That as long as we can find a, as long as we can find a way to boost our finances, and this is in our lesson, as long as we can find a way to boost our finances, Whew. We buy and sell with no regard for the for the consequences. We do things not not thinking of the consequences, but we we do things inadvertently because we know we're to bring increase to the ministry and we'll be able to add on this wall. We <laughs> understand what I'm saying. We'll be able to buy more computers. We'll be able to do more this. We'll be able to do more that. But we miss the worship. We miss the move of God in that type of shift. And so this is what the Lord calls us to seek justice even in our commerce, even in your business dealings. Seek justice. Be honest in our business dealings, in the church and out of the church. If we're men and women of God, if we are Christians, we will seek to for justice we won't short people. We won't hurt people. That we will be cognizant of all of that activity that even in our business dealings that are outside the church, as men and women of God, we've got to be honest and we've got to be just. And these things are these things brought judgment on the nation Israel and may bring judgment on us as well. 
So here we have, so in this, the greed and injustice of many corporate and business leaders in and around the world, it, it has to open our eyes to see it. We see it every day. We see it all the time. We see it all the time, so we've got to be able to gauge this type of activity. We've got to be able to to see where it is that God would have us to be as a people. And we've got to be able to pray, and we've got to be able to intercede so we know that when this activity is taking place, that we've got to put a stop to it. And if it means that that, that you have to sit down for a minute or, or your, your pastor sits you down, because uh, because you are standing up for what's right, then as long as you do it because it is what God has convicted you to do and you and he has commanded you to do, then you have to do what it is that God has equipped and called you to do because if not, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer with that hand of God coming down because those practices are unethical. Those practices are ungodly, and they are only godly with the little g. Amen, somebody? Amen. And so with that, with that being said, with our lesson, we understand that, we understand that at this point, I don't want, I don't, I don't want my morning, I don't want, I don't want my morning to be as if I lost my firstborn and lost my only son. Or any one of my children. Mm-hmm. I want to be. I want to be just. I want to walk in holiness. I want to walk in in that righteousness. I want to help somebody. I want to have mercy for other people. I don't want to exploit. And so personally, he deals with us as a nation. Your nation. I don't want my nation to tremble. He's already trembled my nation. <laughs> I know what it feels like. And I don't ever want to be there again. Mm-hmm. Amen, somebody? Amen. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, oh God, you brought us through so many troubled waters of racism and economic exploitation and other isms and schisms. And yet, Lord, that we don't always honor and worship you for all the many blessings that you have given us and the justice that has prevailed in our lives. Lord, help us stay focused on your justice and not just us. And, Lord, that we thank you for allowing us to see this lesson. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to prosper as we have. But, Lord, allow us not to serve anyone other than you. But, Lord, allow us not to have any other shocking announcements in our life that would cause the judgment that would introduce us to a world without you, that, Lord, that, Lord, help us to not be bitter. Lord, help us to, to not, un, help us to understand the suffering and the punishment that would be brought upon us, Lord, that if we draw from us your revelation. But, Lord, we thank you that, Lord, that so far that you, that the famine has not hit us in the land, that, Lord, that we are hearing your words, that, Lord, that we are prophetically hearing your proclamation that you've given us. But, Lord, that allow us to see the pictures of people that have been distraught, like the Israelites that were wondering about in search of a word from heaven. Lord, don't let us be bound to things that will cause our ears to be closed, that will cause our hearts to be hardened. 
the Lord, that let us not wonder, let us not reel and totter amongst other people that are not like us, the Lord, that, uh, but make us people who dwell amongst the people so we can be light in a dark place. But, Lord, let us understand who you are. Lord, let us search. Lord, let us see you. Let us understand you. Let us seek the word, Lord, so we don't run to and fro. That, Lord, that we don't want the punishment of those that will not listen to your word. That, and, and so they will be put in a circumstance, Lord, that they cannot be, be brought out of. But, Lord, that we thank you that we are not desperate but, Lord, that we won't be cut off from you, that the living word is what it is that we shall dwell upon, that, Lord, that we shall now run to and fro as cults, that people are in cults do. Let us hear you, Lord. Let us hear the call of worship. Let us hear that designated song that we need to sing in order to embrace who you are in the totality of the revelation that you give us. But, Lord, allow us to be Field. Lord, allow us not to condense our worship into commerce, but if we must operate in business, Lord, let us operate in business and then and still give you our full time and in us worshiping and giving devotion unto you that no business be done at that time. But Lord, take our houses of praise to the next level. But Lord, take Take our worship to the next level. But Lord, show us how not to be corrupt and show us how to fight the injustices in church Amen. and out of church. Help us stand for others who can't stand for themselves. But Lord, I thank you that you've accepted the call to stand for right and that, Lord, that everything that we do, that, Lord, we, we will not become corrupt and that we will judge the corrupt, and that our worship will not become corrupt. But, Lord, I thank you and I praise you that we won't profit for anything, but we will profit for you and be blessed in the makings of that profit. But, Lord, I bless you and thank you for everyone that have been on this call on this evening. But, Lord, allow them to be safe in their homes. And, Lord, for those that are listening, that are driving in their cars, allow them to arrive safely. But, Lord, Place a hedge of protection around them. But, Father God, that all things that we see, let us do all things decent and in order in you and love one another so we can be unified in your glory. Allow us to be unified. Lord, let us understand your altar so we don't, we don't meet that destroying angel. Lord, that you don't smite our capitals. That, Lord, we thank you for no more smashing blows. That, Lord, there's somebody that had some smashing blows this week. There's somebody that had some thorns in their side that didn't need to be there because it camouflaged the good thorn that keeps us on our toes. But, Lord, cover our minds, our hearts, and our souls on this ending lesson of Amos. But, Lord, as we continue to press forward and continue to move on in our lessons, let us not forget that the falling, the falling of the temple and the future of our tents. Let us understand who you are in our life, and we'll be careful to give you all the glory and all the praise. 
and in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Somebody better give God some praise. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Don't be shy. Don't be scared. I see a lot of people on the line, and I can't get no hallelujahs up in here. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Oh, somebody needs to give God some Shout to the mountaintops. Yes. Because we're reaching out to the land. We're reaching out yes. to people. Yes. If we are speaking that we work in a unified church and we are unified, then let's stand as such. Amen. Ain't no big eyes or little youth, and I can't follow nothing that's going to send me to hell. Amen? Amen. Because if it caused me to be unrighteous and start judging folks being injustice, I don't want that to happen. I want to worship God in spirit and in truth, being unhindered. He seeks those to worship him. Yes. Yes. Glory to God. Glory to God. Amen. Well, I thank you guys again. This is Dr. Danette Bershay, and this is our, our our Sunday School Bible Study. I thank you for being on the line. I thank you for who for, for just God allowing you to be present and in this support. I thank you so much. Amen. Amen. If there's any questions, I can answer them right now. If there's not, please know that you can call in at 530-881. 1339 and get the playback. Um, also, it will be on my website at www.treasuresoftheheartkojic.com or org and just go on to uh, click on uh, Kojic ISSD and give me time to get it downloaded. And also, it will, it will send you a link to SoundCloud. And SoundCloud is where all the other recordings are as well. So you could catch up on some lessons and be inspired for Sunday school. So you could win a lost soul for Christ. You can help one get restored. And so we can be on fire to rebuild this foundation of Sunday school within our Reformation and also Amen. encourage others in other Reformations to unite in Sunday school because this is what, what, what it makes. It makes you as a, as a Christian and allows you to have a solid foundation so you can win a soul to Christ and you can understand the Romans' role to salvation so we together can stand and understand that his love is what it is that we want to display and knowing that as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3 and 10, and that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Understand that wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sin, in Romans 5 and 12. And now for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6. Yes. My God, yes. that but God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, in Romans 5 and 8. Hallelujah. That if thou confesses with thy mouth that oh, the Lord yes. Jesus and shall believe in thy heart, that God have, have raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved in Romans 10 and 9. But with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation in Romans 10 and 10. And for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved in Romans 10 and 13. And how then 
Amen. And shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? My God, in Romans 10 and 14. And whoever on the line, if you need to get saved or re, or just restore, yes. restore your relationship with God, just pray with me right now that, Lord Jesus, that I confess my sin before you now, that forgive me. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and God raised him from the dead. Save me, Lord. Restore me, Lord Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen. So understand that we just led somebody to Christ, and we just mm-hmm. we just helped somebody oh. else understand oh. that they've been restored because all have sinned, and there's a penalty for mm-hmm. sin, and God has a provision for sinners. Yeah. And that's how to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have prayed. We have done our five steps in due diligence to evangelize and to win a soul here in Sunday school. Amen. So give this this recording to somebody, share it with them, give them the number, and let them know that God loves them and I love them too. And I give God God the glory and honor. And good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.